I'm Julie Montague, and I absolutely love the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. This is the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. And now, Rebecca Larson. Welcome to episode 108. As always, I'm your host, Rebecca Larson. On this episode, I chat with author Adrienne Dillard about one particular woman in the household of Jane Seymour, and some of Jane too. And then for Ask the Expert, we have author Anthony Ruggiero to answer your questions on Queen Mary I. And lastly, I tell you all about the desecration of Catherine Parr's grave. Before we get into the show, I want to thank my newest patrons, Nancy B., Judy D., Anna S., and Judy S. Thank you so much for listening and for your support, and thank you so much to all of my existing patrons as well. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so by going to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tudor's Dynasty, and then click Become a Patron for Options. As a patron, you'll have access to the exclusive content from the show, as well as free books and, of course, the Tudor course. See show notes at TudorsDynastyPodcast.com for links to Patreon, as well as links and more from our guests. Or you can show your support by subscribing, downloading, and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you don't already follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, now is the time to follow and play along. On Tuesdays, I do Name That Place, where I'll share an image of a building and you try to guess its name. To help, I'll give you two clues. Then, on Wednesdays, I'll do a Tudor Spotlight, where I pick one lesser-known character and give you a brief history on them. Then it's Thursday Feature Book Day, where I share an image of a book I have and a brief description of its content. Lastly, we all love to test our tutor knowledge, so on Friday Fun Day, we test our knowledge on the tutor history that we know with a trivia question. So see how much you know and follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as at Tutors Dynasty. All right, let's get on with the show. Adrienne, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So we've had you on in the past to discuss both Catherine Carey, and Jane Boleyn, both women who I think most people recognize easily by name. But today we are going to discuss, well, I suppose another name they're going to recognize, Jane Seymour, and one that they're not going to recognize probably as easily, Marjorie Horseman. Yeah. Uh, Adrian, let's just start with the story, because you are working on a book about Marjorie and Jane. So can you tell us a little bit about the adventure that you're going to be taking us on with this one? Well, everybody knows if you see a picture of Anne Boleyn, the thing that is the most iconic is her bee necklace. So one of the things I was thinking about in writing this story is what happened. Nobody knows what happened to that necklace. So of course, in fiction, you can, you can, uh, you know, you can guess. <laughs> and so my book opens with this necklace being delivered to Marjorie Horseman. And from there, the story alternates between Marjorie and Jane. It picks up kind of in that blank space between the death of Anne Boleyn and, you know, the death of Jane Boleyn. So you can, it kind of goes in between that time um, that I wrote in The Raven's Widow. And so it picks up the night before Anne's execution and it follows both Marjorie and Jane through the whole reign of Jane Seymour. And it's told from both of their perspectives. So in a sense, the reader gets to find out, you know, what things were like as a queen, as a royal, and what things were like sort of in the household. So it's like an upstairs, downstairs sort of story and seeing the things that they have in common, but also the fact that they were so very much opposite. So you're seeing the same story through two different viewpoints. 
I'm so interested with this story because I feel like I finally have this fascination with Jane Seymour's time that I never had before. So I'm really interested to kind of find out from you, was there a moment where you just knew this was the next topic? You know, I actually was intending to write about Honor Lyle. She was going to be the main focus of my third novel. And I had a really hard time letting go of Jane Boleyn. I just could not, writing her story was so impactful on me. I just could not get her out of my head. And so it really sort of started as a way to continue telling Jane Boleyn's story. Um, And I was going to tell it just from Marjorie's perspective. But the more that I started researching, the more that I discovered that there was almost nothing out there about Marjorie. So her life would have been, it would have been entirely fiction, you know, because I have a whole book to fill. And so I didn't want to just focus on her because I didn't feel like I had enough. And um, so I thought, well, I don't want to tell it from Jane Boleyn's perspective because I already did that. I want to tell it from another perspective. And the more that I thought about it, the more that I thought, like, we need to know what was Jane Seymour feeling during this time? Because I think that we really underestimate her. And I think that there is a lot more to her than than even she wanted people to know during her lifetime. And so the more that I started reading about her, I actually picked up Elizabeth Norton's bio on her, which I would say is the most comprehensive bio on Jane. Um, And I just sort of, things were popping out at me that really contradicted the perspective that we have of her and so I thought this is a story we really need to tell because I don't believe that Jane was the enemy of Anne Boleyn that people think that she was I think that she sort of found herself in this really untenable position and she just tried to make she tried to be the best she could and handle it in the best way that she could saving herself Um, and, uh, you know, it, that just really amazed me because I'm the type of person that, you know, all you have to do is look at my face to know what I'm feeling, (laughs) but Jane, uh, uh, like everything, anything she was thinking, feeling, I think she kept really hidden because she did try to share that. And of course, you know, there's this this story about how the king just pretty roundly like told her off. And I think she learned like, if I want to survive this, I am going to have to develop an air of mystery. (laughs) And I just was really drawn to trying to pick apart her mystery. (laughs) So that was kind of how, you know, I read that bio and I thought this, no, Honor Lyle can wait. This is where we need to go. There is just something about Jane and I, I haven't been able to put my finger on it. I think we know so little about her and she reigned for such a short period of time that that it's all just, you know, all we can do is go, I wonder all the time. Right. Right. And I love that. Which is perfect for fiction. (laughs) Yes. I love that you're going to be giving her um, uh, probably a different voice than one we've heard before. Oh, yes. Yeah, it is. And in fact, I have um, a friend, Olga, who runs Nerdalicious. And, you know, she posts a lot of um, Tudor articles and things like that. And so she has been somebody who's sort of helped me through the process. And she she told me, she's like, I've never seen Jane written in this way before. I've never seen her portrayed this way before. So I'm hoping that that's a good thing. I can't wait. I can't. And I and I can't wait to see what you do with Marjorie. Now, before um, we met up for this, I did a little bit of research. I don't, didn't know a whole lot about her. Um, but, you know, I did a quick Google search. I read a few articles, you know, the, just the little 
surface stuff to, yeah. to look at her. But I was reminded when looking at it that she really played a pivotal role in Anne Boleyn's circle. So I'm wondering, right. can you explain to the listeners really who she was? So we don't actually even know where Marjorie came from. Uh, there are, you know, kind of a few tantalizing references to her in the sources. And what we know for sure is that she was listed as a, of the queen's wardrobe. And she is listed at that in 1534. So, um, but, you know, there are conflicting reports because some sources have her at court as early as, uh, you know, serving Catherine of Aragon, which is where I put her because I do think that there is enough there that we could say she probably did serve in her household. Uh, but we don't really know what she did for sure. But we do know that she was of the wardrobe for Anne Boleyn and she was kind of a point of contact really and this is kind of where the Lyles come in she was a point of contact for John Hussey and John Hussey as I'm sure many listeners know he was sort of the London man for the Lyles and he was always running errands for them and giving them things and kind of their connection to London while they were in Calais and so there are a lot of letters from John Hussey that that mention uh, mention Marjorie, and you know she she was actually a favorite of Anne's, and we know that because there is you know in the the records of the interrogations for Anne's fall, there is a letter that the vice chamberlain Sir Edward Bainton wrote. Um, I believe it was to the council, the Privy Council, and he says that Mistress Marjorie, or he calls her Marguerite, is not, she's, she's not helping him. Basically, he talks about how, how he questioned her before, and she was really helpful, and then when he went back to ask her more questions, she wouldn't talk to him. And so he remarks that there was a great familiarity between Anne and Marjorie. So we don't really know why she was helping him at first and then decided not to. My guess is that, you know, she sort of realized like where it was going and thought, I don't want any part of that. And I think the fact that, you know, she flat out told the, you know, Bainton, I'm, I'm not helping you. You know, she refused to help him, which I think was pretty risky on her part. Um, so I think that that really emphasizes that, that there was a good relationship between her and Anne there. And then of course, after Anne dies, she goes on to serve in the household of Jane Seymour and she becomes a favorite there. And Jane appoints her actually appoints her and her husband, Michael Lister, as joint keepers of the Queen's jewels. And that's really interesting because prior to this point, that's never happened. It's always been one person, you know, a lady who is appointed as keeper of the jewels. So this is the first time that there's a joint and um, we know that Michael Lister was was close with the Seymours. He they came, you know, they were kind of near in the country, like their their places where they lived were were kind of near to each other. And he would often spend a lot of time with the Seymours. In fact, in September 1537, uh, Michael Lister is at Wolf Hall with Edward Seymour hunting. Um, and so I think that there was a, a big tie between the Listers and the Seymours and, you know, Marjorie was, was becoming a favorite of, 
of Jane's. And so she stayed in, you know, in Jane's favor through the entirety of Jane's reign. And then, you know, after Jane died, she went home to have their child and they only had one child. And then she just kind of appears intermittently in the record, but I don't think that she, she never retained an official position at court after Jane died. So that's about all we know about her. <laughs> wow. That was a lot. <laughs> you, you know, you mentioned something that um, I think I know very little about, and I'm sure that means there are a bunch of listeners who also know very little about what, what does it mean to be a keeper of the jewel? Like what did they do exactly? So they retained physical possession of the queen's jewels um, in many cases. And I don't think that they re- like, I don't think that they had, you know, all of the jewels all of the time. Um, but I think that what would happen is, you know, the queen would request whatever jewels it was that they wanted from the jewel house. And the keeper would, of course, go to the jewel house, get those pieces, transport them between the, because there was jewel house in, in London. And of course, some of the other palaces had jewel houses. And actually at Hampton Court Palace, when they refurbished you know, Anne's rooms for Jane Seymour, she had a jewel closet put in her rooms. And so, um, you know, the keeper would transport the jewels back and forth. And, you know, when they were not uh, being worn by the queen or being held, you know, at the jewel tower, they would, they would have possession of it, make sure that nothing happened to them. Um, And they would, they would deliver them wherever it needed to go. Sometimes they would go like when, um, when Queen Elizabeth, you know, became queen, then the jewel keeper, and actually Catherine Carey was a jewel keeper to Queen Elizabeth. (laughs) So I seem to like have an interest in these jewel keepers, but, um, you know, she, and there was another jewel keeper. They went and got the jewels from, I believe Susan Clarencius when Mary Tudor died. So they would kind of just aid in, in collecting them and transporting them. And of course, you know, putting them on the queen um, because they didn't, she didn't dress herself. So that was an important duty that, you know, they, you, you would pick somebody you trust. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I imagine, you know, here's my 21st century mind. If my job was the keeper of the jewels, you would find me in my private rooms, putting them all on all at once, just, <laughs> just wearing them in all my glory. You know, I did write a little scene where, where Marjorie goes to, to put a piece of jewelry. She takes it off the queen and she goes to put it back in the jewel coffer and while you know her back is to the queen she like slips the ring on her hand and like looks at it and kind of thinks you know what would my life be like if I had something like this if my you know um and so because I don't think that that Marjorie had I, I don't think that there was much wealth in her family and, um, you know, I, I don't think that she had enough money for a dowry. Um, and I mean, I can go into that later, but, you know, so she contemplates what would my life, who would I marry if I had a jewel like this, I could sell, or if I had, you know, so yeah, you had to have somebody who is very trustworthy and who, you know, you, you would be okay with this temptation, <laughs> Yeah, I don't think I could be trusted with that temptation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't even imagine. I would probably just want to sit there and stare at these beautiful necklaces oh, yeah. and, you know, rings and, and whatnot. What a amazing privilege for her. Yeah, yeah. It was really fun imagining what they looked like, too. Oh, isn't that what we do all the time? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, you mentioned something earlier. You were talking about some of the sources uh, that you've used for this book. Um, let's discuss maybe your research a little bit, because I, I, I know you dig in deep. Um, yeah. For the listeners, what level of historical accuracy should they expect and, and maybe go into um, maybe some of the research that you did as well? Well, as always, I try to, you know, what we do know, I stick to that. Um, I make sure, you know, I hit those points. Um, but of course, in this situation, you know, as we talked about earlier, there isn't a lot out there about Jane during her reign. There's even less about Marjorie. And so there were a lot of gaps to fill in. And so I really had to take the things that I knew for sure and extrapolate from there. So I think that in a way, this book is more accurate and less accurate than my previous books. And here's why. It's less accurate in the sense of I really had to go with my gut instinct and extrapolate from that evidence I had in crafting their personalities, why they did the things that they did, um, you know, and there will, of course, be an author's note that says, you know, that there's a lot of stuff in this that I, I did have to make up, but I tried to go with what was the most reasonable based upon the evidence I did have. Now it's more accurate in the sense of this is the first book I've written where I have been able to go directly to the sources. With my last two books, I hadn't been to England yet. And so I really had to rely upon the things that I could get online or, um, you know, my research in that sense. Whereas this time, I actually got to go to England. I got to go to Wolf Hall. We were, um, Catherine Brooks from the Tudor Society and I were invited to Wolf Hall. And it was amazing. You know, it's not open to the public. So it was very, a, a deep privilege that we were invited to go. And, um, you know, I got to walk in Jane's footsteps. I got to see where they are excavating, you know, part of the Wolf Hall Towers, which was just incredible. And, um, you know, I got to have tea with one of Edward Seymour's descendants. Like, that's crazy, mind-boggling to me. I got to go to the British Library and literally look at the list, the jewel list. So after Jane Seymour died, they took an inventory of her jewels. I got to literally look at that list of jewels and see, um, you know, so, and I got to, of course, go to all of the places where they would have been, Hampton Court Palace, the Tower of London. And so all of the, the atmospheric pieces are that much more vivid because, I had a different, you know, I got to actually see things so that I didn't get to see with my other two books. And of course that makes a big difference. So it's both more accurate and less accurate. <laughs> I love, and I am so jealous that you got to go to Wolf Hall. Oh my gosh. It was so incredible. It was like the highlight of my trip. It was amazing. <laughs> oh, someday, someday yes. I will go there. I know I um, yeah. had been in contact with, I want to say the site historian there. And oh, um, Graham, yeah. yeah, he had sent me some cool pictures. So at least I feel like I'm connected in a little bit when it comes to Wolfhall. <laughs> but I also want to walk in in their footsteps and get yeah. a lay, get an idea of how the layout was and, you know, where the orchards were and and the stables yeah. and all that fun stuff. 
Yes. Yeah. It was amazing. And they are incredibly lovely people. I mean, they have just been so helpful and were so welcoming and it was just really, really a great experience. And, you know, if you can, I know that they have the friends of Wolf Hall and you can donate, um, you know, you can donate to them. So here's my little like plea. If you want to support, you know, if you want to support them, it's a really great project. Uh, you know, if you go to, I think, Friends of Wolf Hall, you, you'll be able to, to do that. I'm so glad you said that because that was that was next on my list to make sure that yeah. people know that they can help out. And I'll include um, a link to that as well in the show notes so you can just easily show them your support. Yeah. So I have so many more things to, to ask you, but we're going to have to save those maybe for another day because it's time to play If I Made You Choose. All right, let's go. Are you? Oh, you're all ready to go. Have you? <laughs> are you familiar with this game? Yes. <laughs> oh, yay! I'm so glad that you are. Well, you know, I'm not going to make it easy on you. Oh, of course not. <laughs> I wouldn't expect anything less. <laughs> all right, Adrian. If I made you choose, Catherine Carey or Jane Boleyn? Oh my gosh, that is. Ooh. Well, I'm going to have to say Catherine Carey because she's like right after my heart. <laughs> but it's a very difficult decision. I, I intentionally did that one because I knew it was going to be hard for you. But I'm always curious to see if I, if I corner you and make you choose who are going to choose. So uh, now yeah. I know. All right. So the next one is Anne Boleyn or Elizabeth the First. Anne Boleyn. She always wins, doesn't she? Well, I have a little bit of beef with Elizabeth the first because <laughs> she was not very nice to Catherine Carey. <laughs> kind of like where you're mean to the ones you love the most because you know they're still going to love you no matter what. And I think that was definitely the situation. Oh my gosh, I can't even breathe. <laughs> <laughs> I have a beef with Elizabeth <laughs> like she's in the other room. <laughs> oh my gosh, you are too fun. Okay, let's move on to the next one. I'm interested to see which way you go with this one, too. So this one, I'm going to have you pick between two guys, Thomas Cromwell or Thomas More. Oh, gosh, that's a tough one. Um, You know, I'm gonna say Thomas More. I'm gonna say Thomas More. And I think that's just because, you know, I think it takes, I mean, either he was really, really brave or really, really stupid to like die, you know, to, to be so stubborn to like go to the block for his beliefs. Um, I think that the, I mean, to me, that shows whether I disagree with him or not shows such incredible bravery that he just was like, I know I'm not going to change my mind. I'm not going to recant. These are my principles. And if I have to die for it, then so be it. Um, you know, like I said, I don't know whether that's incredibly brave or incredibly stupid, but I have to say there's something to be said for somebody who is just so set in their belief right. that like they're they're going to do whatever it takes to uphold it. All right. Now, the last one, my favorites. I, I'm, I'm assuming you know where this is going to go. <laughs> Would you rather? Well, I mean, if I made you choose. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Thomas Seymour or Edward Seymour? Oh, gosh. Oh, you know, I'm going to have to go with Edward Seymour. No, sorry. You got to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's why. Because it would be hard for me to choose between the both of them. But I pick Edward Seymour because Don't do he it. is the one who knighted. He knighted Francis Knowles. So at the Battle of Pinky Clue, uh, during Edward's reign, he knighted Francis Knowles for his service. And so all other things being equal, he has an edge just for that reason. Wow. <laughs> That's it, huh? That's it. I'm not a huge fan of the Seymour brothers, and I'm even like sort of less of a fan. But... 
I will say to you that I think, you know, I do think that Thomas Seymour gets, I think that he gets a lot of flack that is undeserved. So, you know, <laughs> he's still not my favorite, but <laughs> I, I do think that he, you know, he, he has been, you know, the victim of some slander. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I appreciate you saying that because I feel like it's been an uphill battle to get people to look at him a different way. Oh, it's, hey, I totally identify with that because <laughs> it's been the same way with Jane Boleyn. But I am pleased to say that more and more I'm starting to see people saying, you know, I think I was wrong about her. So, all is not lost for Tom. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am so happy to hear that because um, what you've done for Jane and obviously Catherine Carey as well has been amazing. Oh, um, thank you. Your, your, you know, your books are amazing. Um, the Raven's so Widow. I, I think I, I, if I remember correctly, when I finished reading it, oh gosh, I don't. I think I got it right away. Um, when I finished reading it, I remember messaging you that I like cried at the end, even though I, you know, you know how it, it, her life ends. I still yes. remember crying at the end because you just feel so involved in your characters, and that that's what makes you such a great writer. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. It's really writing these books is a very personal experience for me. And that's part of why I write in the first person, because I want the reader to step into these people's lives, because I think it's so easy for us to misjudge them because they're just distant figures to us. But they were real people right. like they were actual people and you know they didn't always exercise good judgment but that they weren't always evil either and so I think we need to remember that and have compassion for them because I mean the Tudors was a terrible time to be alive it really was and uh you know I just want readers to to remember that and I want them to feel those emotions as well and the best way to do that is through first person. So I'm really glad and heartened to hear that it does have that effect on readers. Well, now that we've talked about your book a little bit here, um, why don't you go ahead and tell the listeners where they can find you on social media, where they can purchase your books, etc.? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Facebook. Um, also on Instagram and most of it, you can just find me under Adrian Dillard or I'm at AJ Dillard 81, um, on Twitter and Instagram. I have a website, which is Adrian dash Dillard because Adrian Dillard.com was taken. <laughs> and, uh, of course you can find my books on Amazon and you can find them, you know, online like barnesandnoble.com much anywhere that you buy books you can find them there when should we expect your new book you know i'm not sure i'm still in the process i literally today just sent off uh you know uh my manuscript to my one of my beta readers so still in the process of editing and polishing everything up. But as soon as I know, you know, <laughs> exciting. So we all have something to look forward to. And when it comes to the day that your, your book is published, um, I want to have you back on so we can talk some more about it. Sounds great. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much for being on again today, Adrian. Thanks for having me. And now ask the expert. Welcome to ask the expert. Today's guest is author of Mary Tudor, A Story of Triumph, Sorrow, and Fire, Anthony Ruggiero. Welcome, Anthony. Thanks for joining us. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm in such an honor to have even been asked to come on. So this is awesome. Thank you. So just kind of building on her earlier life then, Allie Castillo, 17, um, and Eden would both like to know what was her relationship with Elizabeth like? We know that they were pretty close as children but then what happened sure um so it's, it's quite interesting i was actually thinking about this the other day um i know that there has been uh, a lot of contention uh with this relationship given its portrayal on the spanish princess uh so i was you know anticipating this uh so you know contrary to what some of you may have seen if you've seen it they actually did have a very good relationship 
Um, you know, Mary was devastated when she was not able to see her mother. Uh, Catherine of Aragon, you know, had been excellent in terms of, you know, what a mother should be, you know, making sure that Mary had the best education um, growing up, making sure that she was always well taken care of, looking after her interests, always, you know, especially after, you know, her separation from Henry VIII, making sure, you know, promoting Mary's best interest, trying her best to try and see her. Um, same thing with Mary, you know, wanting to, again, see her mother. And it was really tragic, um, you know, researching and looking at their relationship, seeing how close they were and how torn apart they were at the same time. So you mentioned that she was such a staunch Catholic, which then obviously brings us to her nickname, Bloody Mary. Galley Fry Girl 927 would like to know if her reputation was really as intense as we think we know, or do you think it was just kind of slander? Where do you think all that came from? Oh, certainly. So um, I've always, you know, said that, you know, Mary, I feel, deserves a bit more evaluation. Um, you know, she really did, you know, face a lot of uh, psychological trauma when she was younger. And I think that really impacted her decision making as she got older. So, you know, in terms of, you know, assessing her character, um, I think that one needs to be taken into account. I do think, you know, the, you know, her being vilified in history does come from a lot of her adversaries, um, you know, John Fox being one of them, uh, who, you know, within his uh, Book of Martyrs and a lot of his pamphlets that he published, you know, paints Mary as this monster. Uh, now, again, I do not want to... Um, take away from the fact that, you know, she did order the execution of, uh, well, of over, you know, 200 Protestants and resulted in the death of, you know, approximately 300 people. Um, you know, there's nothing to take away from that. So there, you know, when people often give her that, you know, assessment, there is, you know, some fairness to it. Um, but to answer that, again, I do think that she should be, you know, again, reevaluated because I think based off of what we see from her early life, going into her adult life and then her reign as queen, I think will give us more of an understanding of, you know, some of the actions that she took. You brought up the executions, which obviously led a lot of other people to some of the questions that came in here. Nina Molina was one of them, and she was asking... If you could just explain the executions, were they all burnings, as we've heard? Um, and I know you mentioned that it was about 300, but kind of how were they done and what was, well, that was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a problem. Uh, so, yeah, so a large portion of them were burnings. Um, and it is uh, quite interesting, you know, doing this research. So they were actually given a trial. Um, however, this trial was conducted um, by a bishop and was also under strict supervision of a um, sect of the Privy Council. Uh, so essentially, these groups of people, they, they were going to be found guilty. <laughs> um so unless you uh, repented um, and chose to convert to uh, the proper faith, um, as it was referred to, uh, you are going to be found guilty um, and you are going to be burnt, you know, according to, you know, the, the teachings uh, that they were given. Um, and this was justified um, in the sense, you know, as, you know, straying, um, straying the sheep, um, if you will, that it was called, um, in which, you know, this was proper Catholic teaching. Uh, this is what happens when you stray away, um, you, the sheep stray away from the flock, if you will. Um, so that's why it was justified. But yes, a, major, a large portion of those people uh, were burnt. Um, and if they did not, if they were not burnt, uh, then they died in, uh, in prison in the tower. How interesting. Thank you. And bringing us back to how you mentioned earlier that she had to claw her way to the throne. <laughs> we know that prior to Mary, Lady Jane Grey reigned for nine days. Yes. So Blue Mountain 44 and Douglas Breeden were wondering, did she really try to save Lady Jane Grey? Did she actually want to execute her or did she want to find a way to pardon her? Um, I think she, you know, just based off of what I have read and looked at and, you know, my own analysis and evaluation of it, um, I do think she tried to go around 
um, executing her. You know, I think Mary recognized that, you know, she was, she was very young. She was, it was she was just really an unfortunate, really puppet in Northumberland's game uh, to try to prevent her from uh, becoming queen. And I think she recognized that, which is why, you know, she imprisoned her in the tower and, you know, that shows accountability. Um but I think once again with Wyatt's Rebellion and uh, Jane Grey's father, Henry Grey, and his uh, participation in Wyatt's Rebellion, I think once that happened, she really didn't have much of a choice um, in the matter. And again, you know, going back with Simon Reynard and, you know, his influence and, you know, how that would have looked if she would have left her alive, um, I think ultimately is what resulted in her being executed. So again, I do think that she did try to go around executing her. Uh, but in the end, you know, as you had mentioned, you know, that it, with the given circumstances, she was kind of, you know, she had no choice in essence. Um, of course, we always have a choice as a person, but um, that given the circumstances, I, you know, she was kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, which has ultimately resulted in Jane Grey's execution. Which is, which I agree with you, is a very unfortunate and sad story. Uh, you know, Queen for only nine days. You know, there's a lot of research that demonstrates that you know she may herself may have not even really wanted that role, um, and she was kind of forced into that. So it's, I, I agree, it's it's very sad her story. Well, speaking of sad stories, this brings us to her relationship with Philip, Kristen Hernandez would actually like to know, were they in love at all? Was there any happiness between them? Or maybe was she in love with only him? Or was it just purely a business transaction of a marriage? Um, you know, I, I this was another thing that I also, you know, wanted to analyze and look at. Um, you know, just the idea, you know, I was very fortunate that I was able to find in my research their marriage contract. Um, and really, you know, looking at that, uh, document it was it, it sounded more like a business negotiation um than an actual you know oh how romantic uh, of course uh, the height of romanticism so um yeah she you know at first i think you know them getting married really was just you know more for political and economic gain on both of their parts but i think you know it more or less developed in mary loving him than him loving her um he was very absent <laughs> uh from their marriage uh, so again, I, I think for him, that was more of a political and economic gain than for her. I think, uh, yes, she gained from the marriage, but I think she loved him and it was not, uh, it was unrequited. <laughs> yes, no, yeah, she has a very, you know, it's a very tragic life, which is, you know, brings me back to my previous point. You know, I do think she deserves, you know, some reevaluation given, you know, her life and, you know, how, you know, well it started and then how it, you know, um, almost quickly and continuously just kind of went downhill. And I don't mean to laugh, but, you know, it's it, it's so unfortunate how that works. Poor Mary. Yes. So, you know, it's always interesting when I when I look at that, and, you know, I've had discussions with people as well about their relationship, because for some reason, you know, I typically see the argument that, you know, as they got older, there was, you know, this some sort of deep rooted resentment. But, you know, as you had just brought up, you know, history shows us different. They did get, you know, they had a relatively good relationship when they were younger, uh, you know, before her ascension to the throne. Um, and I do think there are a lot of factors that go into that. Um, you know, first and foremost, you know, Mary, you know, literally had to scratch and claw and fight her way to the throne. This was, you know, her birthright. And um, Northumberland tried to prevent her from becoming queen. So she literally had to <laughs> uh, fight to, you know, for her birthright. Um, and I think that kind of goes to that age old, you know, saying, you know, it's one thing to get to the top of the mountain, but it's another thing to stay there. Um, so I think, you know, that increasing, the increasing paranoia that we see develop through her reign is first and foremost developed in the fact that, you know, she fought to be queen, she wanted to stay queen, uh, which again, was her birthright. Um, I think that plays a factor into it. I think, you know, 
speaking of which, you know, Wyatt's rebellion when Elizabeth was implicated in that um, rebellion, you know, kind of set off this some sort of trigger in her head that, you know, Elizabeth was coming for her throne. Um, Elizabeth did have a good reputation amongst the people. Um, so she, you know, was fearful that people were going to try and remove her. Uh, I also think the influence of the Spanish ambassador Simon Reynard um, had on her in regards to her relationships with Elizabeth kind of led to that deterioration, Um, as well as I would say the big one, which is the difference in religion. you know, Mary, you know, is, is um, very well known for her staunch belief, belief in Catholicism and her uh, often described ruthless methods in order to try to convert England back to, um, I'm sorry, put them back in the Catholic fold. Um, Elizabeth was now raised under the Protestant faith. And I think that clash um, in religion and Elizabeth's, um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say it's it's obvious defiance. I wouldn't say it was that. It was just more or less, you know, Elizabeth was very, you know, I'm going to do with my what my conscience dictates. And it was very Mary, who was very, again, a staunch believer in Catholicism. You know, I, you know, saw that as, you know, defiance um, and as a threat to her. And I think, again, that just increased her paranoia and increased this dissension uh, between the two. So again, I do think it was those factors all combined. It is. And I'm so sorry to have to bring up yet another tragedy (laughs) pertaining to Mary. But her inability to have children is obviously a big portion of her reign. We know that some of the reproductive issues she was having, such as like painful cycles and phantom pregnancies and such, brought Jen the Vive, Hagen Heidi, and Maha Pantelic to ask if you could possibly just elaborate on this part of her life. Sure. Um, So I know, you know, Mary had uh, suffered, you know, a series of health-related issues really throughout her life. Um, And there is an argument to be made that she actually suffered from a pseudosiesis. Um, So basically, which, which is phantom pregnancies. And, you know, with this condition, you know, you experience all of the same symptoms that you would have if you were actually pregnant. Uh, So she had morning sickness, you know, her abdomen did expand, Um, you know, she reported and what we have in uh, our findings is that she actually stated that she felt a baby moving. Um, Now, there are a lot of different causes uh, to this condition. There's a lot of psychological, you know, they say it's a lot of psychological um, trauma, a hormone imbalance, um, which, you know, I think is a fair um, argument to be made. You know, again, just jumping back, uh, she did suffer a lot of psychological trauma in her life. So it almost kind of makes sense that, you know, she would unfortunately suffer from this rare condition. But then also given with the other health related issues she had in her life, again, we could make a strong argument uh, that she did have issues, you know, hormonal issues um, in that specific case. So, you know, again, very unfortunate, but um, quite fascinating uh, that, you know, for this rare condition and something that certainly was not understood, uh, at least in my opinion, and from my studies, um, in the 16th century that she actually suffered from it. And again, this was a good, you know, this, I'm so not a good source. This was a, um, you know, very traumatic, you know, thing for her and, you know, wanting to produce an heir, wanting to have a child was something that she wanted deeply. Um, so to not have that, I think also kind of contributed, uh, to the, you know, the decline in her mental health, which thus also contributed to her actions as queen. Thank you. Okay, so for our last question, hopefully we can steer away from some of those sad topics now. Lexi NYE, release the Kraken 72, (laughs) and Karen Twardowski would like to know if you can give us an overview of what you think you'd want people to know about the less talked about aspects of Mary's appearance and or personality. Sure. So she was um, very clever. Um, What I've gotten from what I've read, she was very smart, intelligent, and very knowledgeable. Um, She, uh, so (laughs) just to kind of give you an idea of just kind of a thought process, and if anybody has seen a lot of these paintings, they do actually give a great um, 
just uh, depiction of her. I mean, some of the some of the paintings that you see aren't that flattering, um, but, but a good portion of them do kind of capture her. Uh, so she had thin, low, uh, bridge nose, red hair. Uh, she was described as having a fair complexion with light colored lips. Um, they said that she had a loud, deep voice, uh, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, she also was very stubborn, um, which is. Not entirely that surprising, <laughs> uh, given her, you know, history of, you know, especially during the uh, reign of her brother, uh, King Edward VI, and her, you know, her staunch defiance and refusing to kind of accept um, the faith, you know, his faith. Um, so I, that doesn't really surprise me. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, of course. Oh, yeah. And the, that that's definitely a big one. That brings me to my next point. Um, they said that she actually um, had short-sightedness very similar to Henry VIII um, which actually gave her um, what's described as a penetrating uh, stare uh, which I think you can actually get from a lot of the paintings that you see of her this kind of intense stare that uh, you know both she um, and Henry VIII both have Um, they also said that when she was angry she had a very uh, quick temper uh, which, again, based off of, you know, our studies is not entirely surprising. Uh, so, you know, all these things which are so fascinating and, you know, kind of really uh, brings them to life, if you will, uh, knowing these descriptions, knowing them as more of a person than just the actions uh, that we see. So it's a very interesting question. Yeah, perfect. Thank you. Well, again, thank you, Anthony. And thank you to all our listeners for submitting questions. Again, Anthony's book is called Mary Tudor, A Story of Triumph, Sorrow and Fire. Uh, Anything else, Anthony, that you want our listeners to know as far as how to find you on social media, how to find your book, anything like that? Sure. Uh, So you can find my book on Amazon. It is um, available both in paperback and as an ebook. So that is uh, your preference on uh, what you would like. Uh, I do. I'm actually on Twitter. So you can find, you know, if you look up my name or you can go to at Anthony uh, 102901222. Yes, I know there's a lot of numbers at the end. Uh, <laughs> but if you are intrigued, you can go and I do um, tend to post a lot about my writings and, and stuff like that, you know, in addition um, to having the book, which I'm very excited about, um, I have written a number of articles as well. So if anybody's interested, um, please, you know, do give them a look. Um, I'm always open to hearing uh, your feedback. You know, for me, that is super helpful. I am a teacher. Uh, So, you know, I often preach to my students, you know, you have to take feedback, you know, whether it be constructive or not. Um, So you listen and you figure out the best way that you can implement them. Uh, For anybody who has, you know, seen it or read it, thank you so much. Um, the really, this really has, you know, not to be cliche or corny, but this really has been, you know, a dream come true for me, you know, writing and publishing, uh, has always been a goal of mine, um, in addition to being a teacher. So the fact that I am able to do both, um, is something that is nothing short of amazing. So again, for those of you who are listening, who may have looked at it or read it, thank you so much. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you so much again for having me. And say hello to all your students. <laughs> thank you very much. I will tell them. And now, a brief history. In life, Catherine Parr captured our minds and imaginations as a fiercely intelligent and loyal woman who was a romantic at heart and eventually got her a happy ending, only for it all to be ripped away less than two years later. On this A Brief History, I will give you a look into the unquiet rest of Catherine Parr. Catherine was the sixth and final wife of King Henry VIII. Both she and his fourth bride, Anne of Cleves, outlived the king. Catherine Parr held the honor of being the first English woman and queen to be published under her own name when Prayers and Meditations was printed in English in 1545. Catherine Parr lived a fascinating life, full of twists and turns, love and hate, her character besmirched by her choice of a fourth husband. But never in life was she more disrespected than she was 
long after her death and burial. After King Henry VIII died, Catherine Parr secretly wed Sir Thomas Seymour, Baron Seymour of Sudley and Lord High Admiral of England. The couple surprised everyone when the 35-year-old Dowager Queen quickly became pregnant. Catherine had been married three times before and had been thought to be barren, since none of her previous marriages ever produced issue. Many were concerned about Catherine due to her age. In this era, a woman of 35 was thought to be past middle age and dangerously old to have her first pregnancy. As it turns out, their concerns were warranted. Catherine survived the birth of her child Mary, but fell ill almost immediately after, and it was soon evident that she would not recover. She had puerperal fever, an infection caused by unsanitary conditions during labor and birth. Rich or poor, Every time a woman was brought to bed in the pre-modern era, she had a 20% chance of death. Two Tudor queens died of puerperal fever. Henry VIII lost his mother, Elizabeth of York, and his third wife, Jane Seymour. On September 5, 1548, Catherine Parr died. Hers was the first royal funeral of the new Protestant era. For a thousand years, royal funerals were month-long affairs of pomp and splendor, with masses said continually for the soul of the deceased, and servants praying around the clock beside the coffin, being illuminated by hundreds of candles that were never extinguished. Most of the ceremony was now dismissed as popish superstition, but some of the traditions were retained, such as embalming. The final services Catherine received would have been performed in her chambers by officers of her household, the chandler, the household candlemaker, and the plumber, who was in charge of the lead. Traditionally, they were involved in the preparation of the corpse, because those supplies played an important role in the preservation of the remains. These men removed the intestines, lungs, and heart of the deceased, and stuffed the body's cavity with sawdust and spices. Perfume salves would be rubbed into the skin of the body, and then it was wrapped in layers of heavy, waxed, canvas-like cloth called seer cloth, like a mummy. The mummy would then be covered in sheets of lead soldered at the seams, and then this would be sealed inside a wood coffin. Usually, the deceased was buried nude inside the seer cloth or shroud, but in a departure from norms, Catherine's body was fully dressed in a colorful striped gown made of silk. There were even slippers on her feet. From later reports about her hair, it seems that it was left loose and unbound. Catherine's funeral took place only two days after she died. It would have been a scramble for all of the attendees to get there in time. Gone were the traditions of making clothes for the mourners. There wouldn't have been time for that. Gone was the wood effigy that used to lie atop the coffin. Gone, hundreds of candles. The mourners all approached the altar and gave alms for the living poor instead of paying for masses for her soul. Catherine was buried near the altar in the chapel at Sudley. Very little description of her grave survives. Now, Thomas Seymour was executed in March of 1549, so even if his wife had wanted an elaborate tomb or marker, he likely wouldn't have had time to create one. It appears that any monument or grave marker that Catherine would have had would have been simple, perhaps just a marble slab with her name. A century passed, and Catherine slumbered quietly in the chapel. During the English Civil Wars, the castle was lost and won in several battles, and so Parliament decided to have the place slighted in 1649, or intentionally put into a state of ruin so it couldn't be used as a defensive position. The lead roofs were removed, and the castle was left open to the weather, so it didn't take long for it to begin to crumble. The local people took the stone from the walls for their own building projects, and the old chapel was reused as a rabbit warren. 
A tiny side chapel attached to the church where Catherine was buried survived and was used by the locals for their services. Another century went by, but then something happened to interrupt what would have been Catherine's eternal rest. In 1782, a man named John Lucas began exploring the ruins of Sudley. He was an employee of Lord Rivers, the owner of the land where Sudley stood. Lucas dug in the chapel, and just two feet down, he hit something hard. It was a lead coffin, all that was left after Catherine's wood coffin decayed. On the top of the coffin was a lead plate with an inscription. It had her initials at the top and a short epitaph. K.P. Here lieth Queen Catherine, wife to King Henry VIII, and last the wife of Thomas, Lord of Sudley, High Admiral of England, and uncle to King Edward VI. Died 5 September 1548. Lucas cut into the side of the coffin, expecting to only find bones or dust, but instead encountered layers of waxed cloth. He sliced into it, and an arm appeared, white and moist. Obviously, what happened was that the sear cloth and lead casing created an anaerobic environment that preserved Catherine's body. Lucas went no further. He quickly reburied the coffin and reported the find to Lord Rivers, who was quite put out that Lucas had been so forward as to open the coffin himself. Though the timeline is a little bit jumbled, it appears that the same year a group of ladies also poked around the ruins. One lady spotted a marble block on the wall and decided a tomb had once stood in that spot. She ordered a servant to dig, and the lead coffin of Catherine Parr was uncovered once again. This group was bolder. They cut into the sheet of lead where the face of the body should be and peeled back the lead and layers of sear cloth. They stared, shocked, at the face of Queen Catherine Parr, undecayed after 200 years in the ground. The ladies reported that the face began to discolor as soon as the air was let in. Very disturbed, they ordered the servants to shovel the earth back over the coffin right away, not having the decency to recover her face. A year later, a friend of Lord Rivers had the coffin dug up again, so she could copy the text from the plate. She reported that the remains were now quite fetid. She wrote that she had hoped to have some sort of stone laid over Catherine's grave to prevent any further inspection, but this was apparently never done. She would not be the last person to express a vague wish that Catherine wasn't left in such pitiful conditions but do nothing to rectify it. In 1784, some rude persons unearthed Catherine's remains once more and drew the body out of its coffin. They played around with the corpse for a bit. One account says that they even danced with it. Agnes Strickland later wrote, An ancient woman, who was present on that occasion, assured my friend, Miss Jane Porter, some years afterwards, that the remains of costly burial clothes were on the body, not a shroud, but a dress. As if in life, shoes were on the feet, which were very small, and all had proportions extremely delicate. And she particularly noticed, the traces of beauty, were still perceptible in the countenance. They cut pieces of the fabric of her dress as souvenirs, one of which is in Sudley Castle today. And someone stole the shoes from her body's feet because they were never mentioned again. When they'd finished with their sport, they discarded the body of the queen on a garbage heap. The local vicar took pity on her and arranged for her body to be reinterred. Two years later, Reverend T. Nash did an archaeological examination of the remains. His delicacy would only allow him to examine Catherine's face and hands. By this point, the flesh had decayed away from her face. Her hands were intact but had turned brown. At this point, or soon after, one of Catherine's teeth was taken as a souvenir, along with a small piece of her hair. Those two are in the Sudley Museum today. 
Nash wrote afterwards that he wished Catherine, the first Protestant queen, could be buried somewhere more honorably because the rabbits in the Warrens scratched, quote, very irreverently about the royal remains. In 1792, the tenant of the property discovered someone snooping around in the vicinity of the burial and was concerned that they meant to steal Catherine's body. The tenant directed his servants to rebury her in a deeper grave. The September 1792 issue of Town and Country relates a horrified description of what happened next. The author wrote that the glass had circulated too quickly at the servants' dinner before they attended to the task. But that doesn't explain the apparent anger of the servants, which they vented on Catherine's remains. Her body was bashed repeatedly with a shovel, knocking out her remaining teeth. They ripped off her arms and used a spade to decapitate her. Finally, one of them stabbed her several times with an iron pike. And when they had finished with their violent desecration of the dead woman, they dumped Catherine's coffin in a walled grave upside down. In 1817, the rector of the small side chapel the locals had used for nearly 300 years discovered the intact burial vault of George, Lord Chandos, who died in 1654. After tidying up the interior by putting George's bones back into his coffin, the rector expressed a desire to a local antiquarian to find Catherine Parr and put her coffin in the vault where it would be safe. They located someone who recalled where Catherine had been deposited last. Catherine Parr was exhumed once more, but when they opened the coffin this time, they found that she was now nothing but a bare skeleton. Her grave hadn't been well sealed, and plants had been able to grow through the cracks. The coffin had become filled with ivy vines. Later, Agnes Strickland poetically described this as a wreath of ivy that had grown as a sepulchral crown around Catherine's temples, a coronet crafted by nature for Henry's last queen. Strickland's words seem to have captured the Victorian imagination, and a young woman named Miss Claire Payne wrote a poem about it dedicated to Agnes. It's called The Ivy Wreath of Queen Catherine Parr. In Sudley's ruined chapel, lo, twas there, Royal Catherine's neglected tomb they found. More than two centuries had passed while here, reposed her corpse within the hallowed ground. Yet time had not her lineaments effaced. She seemed to slumbering in death's tranquil sleep. For perfect might her features then be traced. So where in death, their form of life they keep. What though no queenly crown adorned her brow. Nature a verdant chaplet round it spread. A living wreath of ivy bloomed there now. With solemn majesty it crowned the dead. The ivy faithful to the ruin clings. And o'er some seem uncared for and forgot. A beauteous mantle gracefully it flings. To deck in grandeur the forsaken spot. So in the grave this ivy wreath we find. Whence all else living had for ages fled. A green sepulchral coronal enshrined. Around the temples of the honored dead. The back of Catherine's skull retained a small patch of hair, which they retrieved and washed. The rector noted it was the same color, blonde, as the piece that had been cut from her body the night that she had died. It's in the Sudley Museum today. They cleaned the coffin of all of its accumulated grime and repaired it. In the 1830s, Sudley Castle had passed into the hands of the Dent family, they began the long process of restoring the castle and the chapel as well. The family built Catherine a beautiful tomb, its marble effigy based on her portrait and the carving on a fragment of a marble slab that was uncovered in the ruins of the chapel. This time, when they opened the coffin to place her in her final resting place, they found nothing but brown dust. Catherine Parr now has the most beautiful tomb of any of Henry VIII's queens, and her long, strange journey is hopefully at an end. Thanks for checking out the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at TudorsDynasty.com. Follow Tudor's Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening.